Well, good morning, everyone, and uh, it's good to be back in the Crescent Building. Um, as Tony said, we're continuing our series. If I just maybe I should just waffle, Richard, because I, I, I still can't hear myself. Can you hear me? Yes. Okay. Uh, I'm obviously getting old, um, but we're continuing our series called the Pilgrim Way. And you may have noticed that a lot of the stories that we have considered in this series take place in rather uncomfortable places. I mean, we're not um, reading of people sitting in a luxurious penthouse in Manhattan or uh, sitting under a parasol on a beach in Malibu. In fact, most of the scenes have taken place in a wilderness, some Middle Eastern desert that is all the charm of a landscape found on the moon. And in that great moment of history known as the Exodus, God's people were rescued from a life of slavery in Egypt and brought to the promised land. And that journey should have taken them six weeks. But in actual fact, God's people moved around the desert for 40 years. And that fact raises an obvious question. Why would God subject his people to a virtual lifetime of grinding difficulty? And to help us uh, address that sensitive pastoral question, to help us find an answer, we're going to read um, a beautifully written, written chapter of Scripture. It's Deuteronomy chapter 8. We're going to take time to read it together. Um, and uh, you may want to find that on your phone or uh, who knows, even a Bible. And it, just to set the scene, it takes place uh, on the plains of Moab, which is just east of the Promised Land on the other side of the Jordan River. So the 40-year journey had finished, as we we're going to pick up the story. The people at long last were about to enter into their inheritance, and their great leader Moses addresses them uh, just before he dies. So Deuteronomy chapter 8. The whole commandment that I command you today you shall be careful to do, that you may live and multiply and go in and possess the land that the Lord swore to give to your fathers. And you shall remember the whole way that the Lord your God has led you these 40 years in the wilderness, that he might humble you, testing you to know what is in your heart, whether you would keep his commandments or not. And he humbled you and let you hunger and fed you with manna, which you did not know, nor did your fathers know, that he might make you know that man does not live by bread alone but man lives by every word that comes from the mouth of the Lord. Your clothing did not wear out on you, and your foot did not swell these forty years. Know then in your heart that as a man disciplines his son, the Lord your God disciplines you. And you shall keep the commandments of the Lord your God by walking in his ways and by fearing him. For the Lord your God is bringing you into a good land, a land of brooks of water, of fountains and springs, flowing out in the valleys and hills, a land of wheat and barley, of vines and fig trees and pomegranates, a land of olive trees and honey, a land in which you will eat bread without scarcity, in which you will lack nothing, a land whose stones are iron and out of whose hills you can dig copper. And you shall eat and be full, and you shall bless the Lord your God for the good land he has given you. Take care lest you forget the Lord your God by not keeping his commandments and his rules and his statutes which I command you today, lest when you have eaten and are full and have built good houses and live in them, and when your herds and your flocks multiply and your silver and gold is multiplied and all that you have is multiplied, then your heart be lifted up 
and you forget the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery, who led you through the great and terrifying wilderness with its fiery serpents and scorpions and thirsty ground where there was no water, who brought you water out of the flinty rock, who fed you in the wilderness with manna that your fathers did not know, that he might humble you and test you to do you good in the end. Beware, lest you say in your heart, my power and my might of my hand have gotten me this wealth. You shall remember the Lord your God, for it is he who gives you power to get wealth, that he may confirm his covenant that he swore to your fathers as it is to this day. And we'll finish there. It's beautifully written, that, isn't it? And it's a passage that contains a vivid contrast between the beauty and fruitfulness of the promised land and the barren, terrifying wilderness. Sometimes the best way to explain a wilderness is to contrast it and compare it with the beauty of a fruitful life. Moses describes the promised land as a verdant paradise, doesn't he? Deep springs of refreshing water gush out into the fertile farmlands below. Abundant life leaps out of the rich soil everywhere. Fields of golden wheat and barley ripen in the sunshine. Vine trellises grown under the weight of huge bunches of juicy grapes. Sleepy bees glide through the rays of the sun on their way back to their hives. I should really write a travel brochure. And in the mountains, the rich resources of iron and copper wait to be mined. There's just a little throwaway line about metal there in verse 9. And we see the amazing potentialities that God has built into his creation, allowing humanity to engineer and cultivate this world for the benefit of all creatures on the planet. As Paul says in 1 Timothy chapter 6, God richly provides us with everything to enjoy. Now, set that beautiful vision for life against the reality of the wilderness. In the wilderness, there is no opportunity for fruitfulness. There are no satisfying results from work. There is no potential for creativity. You can't produce fields of wheat or vineyards in a desert. So the people had to survive on this miraculous food called manna. It came directly from heaven each day in the form of little drops of liquid that looked a bit like milk. And when the manna dried, it became a little sweet wafer that tasted a bit like honey. It was a foretaste, of course, of the land of milk and honey. But that's what they had to survive on for 40 years. There were no pomegranates, no freshly baked croissant, just manna. And after you've eaten manna flakes for breakfast, manna sandwiches for lunch, manna curry for dinner, you might start to get a bit bored with the awful sameness of your life. In the promised land, an Israelite farmer might watch uh, his young son and twin daughters swing on a farm gate and look out at his fields of barley. It had been hard work clearing that upper field, plowing it up and planting the crop. But the farmer felt a quiet satisfaction as he saw the results of all his hard labor. Work is good. But in a wilderness, there's very little opportunity to gain satisfaction from work. All you do is survive from day to day. Life doesn't seem to have much of a trajectory at all. Then imagine an Israelite miner digging out iron ore from a seam of rock he had found in one of those mountains that run down the spine of the promised land. One of humanity's first engineers uses incredible ingenuity and skill to beat out a metal rim for one of the wheels of his cart. 
And he wonders to himself what future generations of human beings might do with this massive technology. The opportunity to be creative is such a blessing in life. But in a wilderness, well, it rarely supports any innovation or creativity. There's just grinding survival from day to day. In the course of this study, I want to apply the metaphor of a wilderness. Uh, wilderness living, I want to apply it at three levels. First, at the level of an individual believer. Then we'll think about it at the level of this church family. And finally, very briefly, we'll think about it in its widest, widest sense as a metaphor for the pilgrim journey taken by all of God's people from time to eternity. I hope that this COVID-19 pandemic has given those of you who live fruitful lives some empathy for your fellow believers who have been called to live for a season in a wilderness. Maybe for the first time you have sensed the frustrations, the smallness, the sameness of daily life when there is no opportunity for fruitfulness, when there are no satisfying results from work, and when there is no potential for creativity. Now, let me be careful here. Nearly every single or childless believer that I know lives a radiant and fruitful life. Christianity is the only religion in the world which accords respect to the single estate. But those of us who are single and childless knows that there are times when life can feel a bit like a wilderness. There are no children swinging on the farm gate. I often think of elderly widows who have to come home to a dark house and switch on the light for themselves. They stab a microwave meal for one with a fork a few times and then sit by a small kitchen table and eat alone. Then consider the wilderness experience known as redundancy. A man slumps in his living room and wonders how long it will be before he once again can enjoy the satisfaction of seeing the results of his hard work. Redundancy has attacked his feeling of self-worth at its very core. Even retirement can produce a similar feeling. Someone who felt valuable and responsible now potters around coffee shops while concealing their deep fear that life has become a futile thing. And then consider a middle-aged woman who spends hours every day caring for an elderly parent. She forces herself to be calm and positive even when her patient is difficult or completely unresponsive. And she wonders how long this season of her life will last. Maybe she just finished the great task of raising a family, but now it feels as if she's starting all over again, but without the joy this time. The wilderness of life. No opportunity for fruitfulness. No satisfying results from work. No potential for creativity. Just a repetitive, grinding form of existence. I was speaking to the Christian Union at Queen's on Monday night, uh, on Zoom naturally, and I realized a few minutes into the event that I had forgotten to tidy my kitchen, so my Zoom background was a bit of a mess. But out of camera shot, I was wearing pajama bottoms. And I calculated that an untidy kitchen was not as frightful an image as a sight of me in pajamas. Anyway, they asked me uh, to address the question, where is God when life is unfair? And I made the point that God uses suffering for our good. 
And afterwards I got a question from a student who was clearly in the middle of a wilderness experience. And she asked me, why does there need to be suffering? Why couldn't God just do a nice big miracle? It's a great question. When we suffer, we doubt various things about God. First, we sometimes question God's love. People who experience the type of grinding, chronic suffering that we consider this morning often ask themselves, why is God putting me through this? It's not a short, sharp shock. Remember, God's people lived in the wilderness for 40 years. Well, my suffering brother or sister, let me remind you that it was in that howling wilderness where God professed his love for his people. It was at Mount Sinai when God told his people that he had borne them on eagles' wings and brought them to himself. He would be their God and they would be his treasured possession. He entered into a covenant with them at Sinai and you have been made part of an even better covenant. You are his treasured possession. You are worth more to him than all the galaxies of this universe. You are the apple of his eye. You are his precious daughter, his precious son. But then sometimes suffering like this raises an even deeper question. Sometimes we don't doubt God's love or his power. We doubt his wisdom. We wonder if God is competent. If he knows what he's doing with our lives. Sometimes a terrible groan can erupt in the heart of a suffering believer. What possible good could this thing do? And it is Deuteronomy chapter 8 which answers that question. After a 40-year wilderness experience, God's about to lead his people into an abundant and fruitful life, and he explains to them why he has put them through such a long, grinding experience. I'm going to make two points in this talk, and they are both about God. Last week, you may recall, uh, we learned that God is the God who sees. But this week, we're going to learn that God is the God who feeds my soul, and God is the God on whom I depend. And God's argument in this chapter is that there are two great risks associated with an abundant life. The first is that we become materialists. We imbibe the lie that material blessings are the real source of spiritual food. And the second risk is that we become independent of God. We start to believe that we are self-sufficient, and that makes us proud. So those are the two risks. Forgetting the true source of life and self-sufficiency are the two great risks that attend a prosperous and bountiful life. Moses talks about the risk of materialism in verse 3 of the chapter. He says, God humbled you, causing you to hunger and then feeding you with manna, which neither you nor your ancestors had known, to teach you that man does not live on bread alone, but on every word that comes from the mouth of the Lord. Now, I don't need to remind you that our Lord Jesus quoted this verse from Deuteronomy to Satan when he was tempted in the wilderness. And he is our example when tempted to reduce life to materialism. Here's the point. The huge risk of a bountiful life is that we forget that only God can feed the soul. So God has to put his people through the wilderness experience so that they would know that he was the goal in their life. He was their purpose. He was the source of life's meaning. Remember Exodus 19.4 once again. It was in the wilderness that God brought people to himself. That was the goal. Not Canaan. Not 
figs and pomegranates. But once the lesson had been learned, then God's people could enjoy the good gifts of life without ignoring the giver. I mean, let's return to our Israelite farming family for a moment. A little six-year-old girl swinging on a field gate. Maybe earlier she helped her her mum make some goat's cheese or press some olives. Her older brother is helping dad plant crops in the big field beside the well. Farm life was hard, but not every day. On the Sabbath, mum might brush her daughter's hair with particular care. Her brother would fix his little kippah on his head, and then the whole family would walk down the lane into the village. A simple precursor to a synagogue was their destination. And our six-year-old would hear the scriptures being read. She would listen to those sad and beautiful Hebrew songs, all written in the harmonic minor key. And maybe she would join in the chants, give thanks to the Lord for He is good. Sometimes she could hear her dad's fine baritone voice singing with a fierce joy with the rest of the congregation. Or she looked up at her mum's face, eyes closed in grateful prayer. What would the Sabbath teach that little girl? She would learn that there is more to life than work and sleep, that man does not live by bread alone. For a while, the market sellers would be silent, the village gates would be closed, and the air would be full of singing thanks to God. On the way home, she might ask, why do we stop work each week and sing and pray to God? Well, Dad would say, we didn't always live in this beautiful land, you know. In fact, our forefathers were slaves in Egypt, but God rescued us, and He fed us and cared for us in the wilderness for 40 years. And then He led us into the promised land. So we give thanks to God for saving us. Did we have to work really, really hard to earn God's favor, favor, Dad? Not at all. He gave it to us as a gift. We simply received it. And that's why we're all so grateful to Him. Now, it takes a wilderness experience to teach us that only God feeds the human soul. But the wilderness experience also mitigates a second great risk, the risk of self-sufficiency, the lie that we can live lives that are independent of God. Verse 17 of our chapter says this, You may say to yourself, My power and strength and the strength of my hands have produced this wealth for me. But remember the Lord your God, for it is He who gives you the ability to produce wealth. Abundance and blessing can cause pride to arise in the sinful heart. Centuries later, an old pagan king called Nebuchadnezzar looked down at his beautiful uh, capital city, and he said, Is this not red Babylon that I have built? Now, God saved that old pagan. Um, You will meet him one day in heaven. I shall have to apologize for calling him an old pagan. But in order to save him, God had to drive that man out of his fine palace for a season and make him live with wild animals. Time and time again in Deuteronomy 8, we hear Moses talk about humility. It can take a wilderness experience to crush pride within the human heart. And only then can a humble and contrite heart develop the beauty of a life that is dependent upon God. You see, in the wilderness, God's people couldn't farm their manna. They didn't work for it. They received it straight from heaven. And it is certainly my own testimony that it took suffering to crush pride and self-sufficiency in my own heart. There came a moment when I just had to depend on God. There was no other option. 
I looked into the vault of my heart and discovered that I was bankrupt. I had nowhere else to lean. So maybe I'm talking to some poor, suffering believer who's enduring a wilderness season. Perhaps God is developing that beautiful moral quality within you known as faith, that childlike dependence upon God. And so when you leave this particular desert, the Apostle Paul's words will ring true in your heart. With real gentleness, he asks, what do you have that you did not receive? And if you did not receive it, sorry, and if you did receive it, why do you boast as though you did not? So we thought about two great lessons from the wilderness experience. We discover that God is the God who feeds our souls, and God is the one on whom we depend. Now, so far in this study, uh, we have applied this teaching to the lives of individual believers, but I want to think briefly about lessons for us as a church family. This week, Ollie Neal and I, uh, he's hiding behind the organ, uh, will be publishing a podcast on the future of evangelicalism. And I really, really regret allowing Ollie to persuade me to tackle such a controversial topic. My aim is to offend everyone equally and hope that that's interpreted as fairness. In recent years, I have developed a sense that churches like ours are going to have to endure a wilderness experience for the next 20 to 30 years, unless the Lord returns. We are going to see tens of thousands of millennials leave evangelical churches and walk into post-evangelical groupings which affirm the LGBT lifestyle. And that move will require them to jettison their belief in the authority of Scripture. Evangelicalism also houses a huge number of what we may call Christian nation warriors, people whose primary allegiance is to a culture and defending a culture rather than to the gospel. So when cultural Christianity collapses, as it inevitably will over the next decade, the Christian nation warriors will disappear. So many evangelicals will experience feelings of failure and loss. Families, elderships, and churches will split over the tension between the Bible's sexual ethics and the LGBTQ philosophy. The Christian values that still permeate our society will atrophy. Nietzsche is right. So societies could easily force Christians to the margins. The young couples here with infants should not assume that society will allow your children to become doctors and teachers, or at least not, uh, without compromising their beliefs. And during this wilderness time, the bulwark for churches like ours will be Christian homes, Christian households. I really think we need to make a decisive pivot here and provide relentless support to parents who are raising families in the world that could quickly become a wilderness. The spiritual development of children cannot be outsourced to a youth program. Ollie is very fond of the idea of youth work as a partnership with parents, and I think he's absolutely right. It's interesting, you know, when I just turn back a page in, into Deuteronomy 6, Moses says this about the Scriptures. Impress them on your children. Talk about them when you sit at home, when you walk along the road, when you lie down, and when you get up. Tie them as symbols on your hands and bind them on your foreheads. Write them on the door frames of your houses and on your gates. Now, the ancient Israelites took that literally. But Moses' main point was that the Scriptures should exercise authority over your home life and over your mental life. Remember, this is the great battle of the 21st century of a church. 
The heresies which attacked the early church were all about the person and the work of the Lord Jesus. But the attacks we face in this century are all about the authority of Scripture. Now, it's not enough for me simply to stand here and assert that. We need to explain patiently and rationally to teenagers why it is right and sensible to accept the authority of the Scriptures over our lives. But really what people like me do is secondary. The real battle is won or lost in the home. So let me address young parents in the room here in all gentleness. Can your children see your obedience to Scripture in your lives at home? They won't if they hear shouting and swearing and door slamming. They won't if they see you prioritize their academic education over their spiritual development. Unless they see you sitting reading the Bible, discussing it together, not gossiping about the preacher, but discussing the Scriptures, they will never learn the truth that only God feeds the soul. They won't see what it means to live a life dependent upon God if the only things that excite you are material. But if they see your faithful service and loyalty to a church fellowship, then and only then will they learn that man does not live by bread alone. Please do not take that as a scope. That is the furthest thing from my mind. What I'm suggesting here, curiously, is that the tough times that lie ahead are an opportunity for you to escape from the risks that attend a prosperous, trouble-free life. It might take a bit of wilderness for you to avoid the mistakes that previous generations have made. So those of you with young families, do not be afraid of the future. The collapse in cultural Christianity might be the very thing that will help you build a Christian home that will shine for all eternity. I want to close by applying Deuteronomy chapter 8 to the entire story of the Christian church. In a sense, this old world, all of it, is a wilderness, bedeviled by scorpions and snakes. But we stand on the verge of a new heaven and a new earth. We face a future that is bursting with potential goodness and uh, creativity. My dear suffering brother or sister in Christ, just across the border that divides us physically from eternity, there waits for you what Paul calls an eternal weight of glory. Satan couldn't cope with heaven's glory. His heart was lifted up in pride and he was cast down. But because this old wilderness will have taught us to feed upon the bread of God, to live in humble dependence upon him, we will be able to bear the weight of eternal glory. And that, in many ways, is what the whole drama has all been about. So, to those weary pilgrims listening to me now, know that the best is yet to be. Perhaps life for you now is a wilderness. You experience the chronic, grinding sameness of a life that has no obvious fruitfulness. Sometimes you feel like asking God, why couldn't you just do a nice big miracle? Well, the Lord understands that feeling. So ask Him. Talk to him about how you feel. And remember that whatever happens, this season will end. You have an inheritance up ahead of you that is reserved for you, protected by God's power, a future bursting with vitality and creative potential, a future where you will live within the circle of deep, loving relationships. You will know the satisfaction of rewarding work. And so I close with the words of the prophet Habak. You can say, Though the fig tree does not bud, and there are no grapes on the vines, though the olive crop fails and the fields produce no food, though there are no sheep in the pen and no cattle in the stalls, 
Yet I will rejoice in the Lord. I will be joyful in God my Savior. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, we pray with all the tenderness and gentleness we can muster for those listening whose hearts have been grieved by chronic suffering, a suffering that never seems to end but just go on and on. Pray, Lord, that you would infuse understanding into their hearts, that they would know not only your love but your wisdom and that they could dimly begin to perceive what you are doing in their lives by calling them to go through this terrible, difficult experience. You are building beautiful moral qualities into their character, qualities that will be needed for all eternity, that they will know in their hearts that you are the God who feeds their soul, that by going through this wilderness, they will be disentangled from the lure of materialism, that they will stop finding joy and meaning in physical stuff. And pray, Lord, that they will know that you are the one on whom they depend, that you will draw out from them that most beautiful of things, childlike faith. And Lord, I pray that you would give them hope, that they would know that the best is yet to be. We pray particularly for those who are raising families, young families, going into a future where life could become more tough for Christians. Pray, Lord, that you would help them to seize the opportunity, not to see it as a threat, but to seize the opportunity to live distinctive Christian lives in a pagan world. Pray for this fellowship, that you would help an upcoming generation unlearn the mistakes of previous generations, generations who were too comfortable, who had too few problems. Pray that you would help us to live as First Peter tells us to live. Help us to know how to handle a hostile state, to know how to accept injustice, and to be joyful as people see the way we react in a Christ-like way. Help us to be able to give a reason for the living hope within us and to shine like stars. So we pray that you part us in your fear and with your blessing. In Jesus' name, amen.